We are currently in a series through the New Testament book known as the Acts of the Apostles. Come this morning to chapter 5, verses 11 to 16. Our title is Purity and Power. Let's bow our heads together before the Lord. Lord, we come this morning uh, to your word hungry and, uh, Lord, humbly knowing that uh, you want to feed us and we need what you have to serve us. So we pray, Lord, that you'd nourish us by your word. Pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear the things that you want to reveal and hearts to obey the things that you show us. We need your help to understand your word. So by your spirit, we pray that you'd open these pages to us today. And we're listening, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand with me then to to honor God's word as we read this aloud together. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, you know, when when you and I read our Bibles, um, we encounter numbering systems for chapters and verses that weren't original uh, to the writing. When the books of the Bible were originally written, there were no such things as chapters and verses and section headings. Um, Each book was written without any breaks from beginning to end. Chapter and verse divisions didn't show up in our English Bibles until around the 16th century. So why were they added? Well, they were added for the sake of convenience, right? For purposes of reference, for purposes of quotation. They just make it easier for us to navigate our Bibles and find what we're looking for. And in many ways, they're a real gift to us. But on the other hand, it's important to realize a few things about them that can also be problematic. And the first being that they're man-made. That is to say, there's absolutely nothing that's authoritative about these divisions in any way. And secondly, then, because they're man-made, and although most of them make some sense, sometimes these divisions can interfere with the sense of a passage. So third, then, one of the first steps we need to take uh, when we're seeking to interpret the meaning of any particular passage of Scripture is to ignore those modern divisions uh, to a degree in order to make sure that our interpretation of that passage actually fits with the writer's intended context. We've all heard of taking things out of context. Um, One of the most common failures in biblical interpretation is to take a verse or a section of Scripture, sometimes even an entire chapter, out of context and end up going in directions that the biblical writer never intended. And we have in front of us today one of those occasions. Uh, Verses 12 to 16 are set apart in our Bibles 
Um, in the ESV Bible, I have the, the heading, uh, Many Signs and Wonders Done. Some of you carry the NIV Bible, and uh, there the heading is, The Apostles Heal Many. And other translations have given other headings to the passage. And there are at least two mistakes into which these this division and these headings might lead us. And the first is to separate the passage from what went before it, uh, as if Luke intended it to be a standalone section. And in this case, to do that would be to take it out of context. The second is to allow ourselves to believe that the only thing going on in this section of Scripture is what the heading tells us, that uh, many signs and wonders were, were being done, or the apostles were healing many, and just kind of ski over the top of the rest of what is described. Well, you might say, well, that's all kind of boring. Why why did you take the time to say all of that? First, because I want you to be good students of the Scriptures, certainly, and these are some basic and important principles. But more importantly, for our purposes today, if we separate verses 12 to 16 from the previous section, and especially the concluding statement in verse 11, I think we'll fail to perceive the changed dynamic that that underlies what Luke is telling us in these verses. Look at chapter 5, verse 11 with me. It says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. These things. What are these things? Well, that phrase, these things, refers to the sudden deaths of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, which we read about in the previous section, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, which we considered in its totality last week. This couple conspired together to lie to the church about a financial gift that they had given in order to enhance their reputations in the church, to kind of polish their image uh, in the sight of other Christians. Peter confronted them about their lie, and he said that they had not lied to the church, but to God. And uh, in that happy moment, both of them died on the spot, one after the other. But it wasn't Peter who had done the killing. It was God. No wonder, then, that great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things, right? I mean, can you imagine uh, if you were in church, someone was confronted with sin in their life and they just dropped dead? Uh, that would make something of a stir. Wouldn't that have some effect on the church? Kind of, maybe, sort of. Wouldn't it be picked up by at least the local news outlets, right? Wouldn't it be shared over and over again on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and every other social media site you can name. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This statement is the essential link that connects verses 1 to 10 with verses 12 through 16. It sets both the stage and the tone for what we're going to consider in today's text. Now, I don't mean to be melodramatic about this, but but I've spent 
a good deal of time this week just gazing at verses 12 to 16, just gazing. Uh, you might say it, it kind of kicked my posterior this week. Um, I've had these verses in front of me at the gym in the morning. Um, we discussed them in our staff meeting this week. I've, I've walked several laps around the church parking lot with just a printout of these verses, um, read them aloud to myself. I've drunk several cups of coffee over these verses, spilled some of it on my printout as I sat on my desk. I've consulted commentaries. I've listened to several sermons on this passage from pastors and teachers that I respect. And and I've just asked God to reveal to me the essential insights that would unlock the passage. Um, And and it seems kind of strange when you read it because it isn't all that impressive of a passage. It seems pretty straightforward. What I've been after is simply to discern why Luke included the contents of this little section right here at this point in the book, other than a mere progress report or simply a few notes of historical interest, which, by the way, is how all but a few commentators actually treat it. Uh, The passage has some things in common with other passages we've already seen in Acts, for example, uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47, and chapter 4, 32 to 35. So, what was Luke uniquely intending to communicate at this point? And it's amazing how fast a week can go by, and I, I have to have an answer to the question, right? Because I have to stand in front of all of you and say something that makes sense. Well, here's where I've arrived. I think he's answering, in part, the question, what happens when Christians get serious about personal purity and holiness? What happens when Christians get serious about personal purity and holiness? Again, verse 11, in great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. What was the nature of that fear? Luke uses the expression in Greek, phobos megas. Phobos megas. It translates great fear. And of course, that word phobos is the word from which we get our word phobia. And according to that ancient Greek philosopher named Homer, Homer, not Homer Simpson, but the the Greek philosopher Homer, uh, phobos uh, meant the impulse to to withdraw, to flee because of terror and dread, because of a, a feeling of personal danger, a feeling of personal inadequacy or vulnerability. It might be what's being felt today by those lines of Ukrainians that we're seeing fleeing the city of Kiev. Today, we might just say it's the impulse to turn tail and run out of sheer fright. That, that's the thrust of this. So what was the, what was the great, what was the, the nature, the essence of their, that great fear that came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things? It, it was, I think, the fear of the Lord, the, the stark awareness of His utter holiness and of our utter 
sinfulness, of our complete failure and inability to measure up to his righteous standard and the accompanying realization that as a result of all of that, we are deserving only of his wrath and of his judgment. That but for the grace of God, we would go the way of Ananias and Sapphira. And yet, Proverbs, the biblical book of wisdom, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of something. Not the end of something, but the beginning of something. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One, it says, is insight. Those who have studied the great revivals that have occurred in various parts of the world in the 2,000-year history of the church have identified several dynamics that each of them share in common. Um, And I'd like to just share a few of those with you this morning by way of introduction. The first one is prayer. first one is prayer. That God puts a, a longing into the hearts of increasing numbers of people to pray for revival and renewal. And you might say that revival is already happening when people are moved to pray. But in every great revival, any great revival, what preceded it was not a marketing campaign, but rather people being compelled to their knees to cry out to God in prayer for revival, for for renewal, that he would intervene in the church, that he would do something to breathe new life into the church. In Acts 4, 23 to 31, we saw a prayer like that. Notice especially verses 29 to 30. And now, Lord, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It was a a concert of prayer, if you will. They, they, they prayed in one accord. A second dynamic of revival then is the preaching or the reading of God's word, bringing deep conviction to those who hear. In other words, it wasn't that the preaching of the, of the word was new or the reading of the word was new, but that God began to work more intensely to awaken people's spiritual longings through those, those means. And then, um, creating in in them a a desire to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 31, we read the answer to their prayer. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to what? Speak the word of God. Speak the word of God with boldness. A third dynamic is a powerful movement then of the Holy Spirit that takes believers to spiritual depths that they hadn't known before and that couldn't be explained in any other way. And I think that movement is what we're reading about in these early chapters of Acts, that God is working through the apostles, uh, in the apostles, through the apostles, through the church, by the Holy Spirit, demonstrating the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the presence and the power among them of his kingdom. And and by the chilling news of the events of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the disciples as well as their unbelieving Jewish neighbors 
we're reminded of his holiness. His holiness was on full display. Fourth, then, God brings conviction of sin to the hearts of exponentially increasing numbers of people who are inconsolable until they're reconciled to God through personal faith in Jesus Christ, which is another way of describing the fear of the Lord. There's this hunger to know Jesus on a widespread scale. And fifth, God gets the glory. He's glorified. He receives all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. No human being dare lay claim to it. And they really can't lay claim to it because what is happening is so far beyond the capacity of humans to affect. And then the final dynamic that that those who study these things uh, observe is that the revival itself produces lasting fruit. Churches grow and they flourish. New ministries are established. Um, Society at large experiences a moral reformation that flows out of the lives of of more and more people who are converting and repenting and being made new in Jesus Christ. So what I want us to see and to understand this morning from this little passage is that there is a direct connection between personal purity and spiritual power. There is a direct connection between personal purity and spiritual power. When Christians filled with the fear of the Lord get serious about personal purity, about personal holiness, when repentance of sin takes hold in individual lives and in the life of the church, spiritual power begins to flow like never before through the lives of individuals and through the life of the church. Listen to what Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. Find it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. I just sometimes wonder why God doesn't do through the church today, through us individually, some of the things that he did in the days of the early church. I mean, don't you read scriptures like what we're reading in Acts and kind of yearn for God to work in similar ways now? And you say, God, do in our generation what you did in theirs. Do in our time what you did in theirs. And part of the answer to the question is that God works in eras, some eras differently than he works in other eras. But a larger part of the answer, I think, is that the power of the Spirit is, is simply unable to flow through us because the conduit of our lives is so clogged with every kind of sin, every kind of distraction. We are impure vessels, and God wants us to choose I think that's what's there in the Second Timothy passage, that we choose to cleanse ourselves of all that is unclean, all that is dishonorable, so that we become useful to him, ready for every good work. And, and we haven't even begun, I don't think, to imagine all that God wants to do 
through us. If we would just make ourselves available, make that choice to cleanse ourselves and and so become useful for his purposes. So coming at last, and you were hoping for this, right, to our text today. Get to the point, Jim. In the language of verses 12 to 16, there's a suggestion of heightened intensity in the life and ministry of that early church following the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, following that fear of the Lord that gripped all of them and and all of those who heard. In fact, I think that's kind of what overarches and undergirds this whole section. You, You can sense that heightened intensity in what Luke tells us about the ministries of the apostles and the fellowship among believers, the effective witness of the church, and the spiritual power and authority being exercised by the apostles. So notice with me, first of all, that one of those indicators of of heightened intensity can be seen in their deepening fellowship. Acts 5, verse 12, they were all together in Solomon's portico. You want to say, well, well, so what? Luke tells us where they were. But more importantly, he tells us how they were where they were. Where they were was Solomon's portico, that area adjacent to the temple courts. Jesus spent a great deal of time there when he was on earth in his personal ministry. The the the, the apostles in the early church spent a great deal of time there. It was a gathering place for them. So that's where they were, but how they were was all together. And again, you say, well, that's just geography. No, that phrase altogether translates the Greek word homothumadon. It, it literally means same passion. Same passion. It means to be of one heart, of one mind, of one purpose. Luke used this word in, in chapter 1, verse 14, where he told us that following their return from seeing Jesus ascend into heaven, The disciples were all together and were of one accord. He wasn't talking about a Honda sedan. He was talking about homothumadon, of being of one passion, one heart, one mind. He used it in 2.46 where he described the attitude with which the church gathered together in the temple following the day of Pentecost when they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is the same word Luke used to describe their approach to common prayer in 4.24 when they lifted their voice in one heart and mind to God. See, when we get serious, if we would get serious, when we would get serious about personal purity and holiness, God will move us to a more committed, more intentional, more passionate commitment to each other within the fellowship of believers. God will unite our hearts together in a common passion and a common purpose to fulfill his commands, to fulfill his commission in our time. And it's as if the apostles have kind of passed a test. The church has kind of passed a test. 
as they responded to what took place with Ananias and Sapphira, and that God is allowing them to graduate to a new level. The church is a big deal. Jesus died for the church. When we read in the Acts of the Apostles, we're reading about the church. Real people, saved by the grace of God, called together in a common fellowship and a common purpose. What we see increasingly today is people who once claimed to be Christ followers deconstructing their faith and abandoning the church. You heard that word deconstruction? Deconstructing? It's almost become fashionable for some to do that these days, it seems, and and to do it very publicly. Jesus warned, actually, about this very thing, this very dynamic, in the last days. Chapter 24 of Matthew, verses 11 to 13, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you listen to those who are touting their deconstruction, one of the things we find about nearly every one of them is that they're not at all grounded in the Word. They're not grounded in sound doctrine. And so they're vulnerable to deception and being led astray. And in their deception, they abandon the people of God. They deconstruct their faith. They abandon the church. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John, they went out from us because they were not of us. They weren't the real deal. And so eventually, they showed their colors. See, if we're living in the fear of the Lord, we will renew our love for each other within the fellowship of the church. Jesus never intended church to be an event that you attend once a week and sit shoulder to shoulder in rows. He he intends the church to be a community to which and in which you belong, where you know and are known, where you love and are loved, where you serve and are served, and where you are personally invested, where you play an essential role. Another indicator of heightened intensity is what I'm just going to call authenticated identity. And I know that's an awkward pairing of words, but bear with me. What do I mean by that? Notice with me the first part of verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Authenticated identity. If you've been with us since the start of this study, or or if you're simply familiar with the acts of the apostles, you might say, well, so what's new? We've been reading about that since chapter 2. And you'd be mostly right about that. Chapter 2, verse 43 says that many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In chapter 3, Peter and John are instrumental in healing a man in his 40s who had been lame since birth. In chapter 4, 29 and 30, the church prays for God to stretch out his hand to heal and that signs and wonders would be performed through the name of Jesus. But remember that we're talking here about heightened intensity. And what what is intensified here 
is the pace, the frequency with which signs and wonders are being done. The English Standard Version says many signs and wonders were being done and that they were now being done regularly. And for what purpose? What's the purpose of signs and wonders? And I know that you'll be shocked and surprised at this, but the purpose of miraculous signs and wonders in the New Testament is not to entertain Christians. It's not to add a little razzle-dazzle to the worship service. But the purpose of miraculous signs and wonders as we read about them in the New Testament is to authenticate the proclamation of the gospel. In the life of Jesus, they were to identify, to authenticate his identity as the Christ, the Son of the living God, to authenticate what he came to proclaim. With the apostles in the New Testament, it's to authenticate the proclamation of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to demonstrate the presence and the power of the kingdom of God, to, and then to validate, to authenticate, to validate, if you will, the identities of the apostles as his representatives that they were the ones who had been appointed to carry on the ministry of Christ. And those who witnessed the signs and the wonders that were performed by the apostles simply could not deny their message. They couldn't deny the clearly miraculous nature of what was happening. They couldn't deny the power of God that was healing and delivering men, women, and children in ways that no one thought possible. So when the people of God get serious about the holiness of God in our lives, what happens is that the Holy Spirit is freed to move through us with greater power. So you may say, well, I don't see you doing signs and wonders, Pastor Jim. What gives? What is it that validates our proclamation of the gospel today? What, what is it that validates our, our identity as disciples of Jesus? Jesus himself said this in John thirteen thirty five: By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And you say, well, that doesn't sound too powerful. That doesn't sound too life-transforming. You may have never thought about love in the church as an authenticating mark of our identity as his followers, as a sign of the presence and the power of the kingdom of God, or, or as an expression of spiritual power. But if our love for each other as Christians is genuine, if it's tangible, that, that means it makes a practical difference in each other's lives. If it's observable to others, then it's also all of those things as well. It is a sign of the presence and power of the kingdom. It is an expression of spiritual power at work in and through the church. In verse 13, we encounter the dynamic of holy fear. Holy fear. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
I'll admit that I struggled this week to understand what it was Luke was trying to communicate in this verse that sounds so paradoxical. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And I, I wondered, who are the rest and who are the people? And I looked at the Greek language in hopes that it might help. I didn't find any help there. But here's where I ended up. I And I wouldn't die for this opinion, but it seems to me that the rest and the people are one and the same. Both groups are unbelievers. And on the one hand, the news about Ananias and Sapphira had spread throughout Jerusalem and probably beyond so that there was an understandable fear about associating with these followers of Jesus. You know, if you'd heard that somebody got killed by God at a given church, you probably wouldn't attend there the next Sunday, right? I mean, you you probably just kind of keep your distance for a little while. Fear of the holiness of God. On the other hand, There was an attractiveness about the believing community that caused those outside of that community to think well of them, to hold them in high esteem. In Acts 2, we read that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the ways that they loved and served each other, the joy and the sincerity that marked their faith, the purity of their lives, their their visible generosity toward one another, sacrificial generosity, drew people to them. So we might say, that the presence of the holy God among them, the, the sheer stark holiness of God, had kind of a centrifugal effect that spun people out away from the church. And at the same time, a centripetal effect that drew them back in, that drew people to the church because they were curious, because they were hungry for what was going on there. As I thought about this paradox this week, I was reminded of a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, one of the volumes in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in that book, a girl named Jill finds herself translated to that magical land of Narnia, which is ruled by a lion named Aslan. And as a result of Jill's pride and foolishness, to make a long story short, she finds herself stranded and alone in a strange forest. And as she's crying, she's lamenting her situation, she becomes extremely thirsty and sets out in search of water. And at long last, she finally spies this clear, enticing, flowing stream. And allow me to pick it up from there, from the pages of the book. Although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she wouldn't, couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion, If only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. 
If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. See, the the holy power of God within the church, the holiness of the lives of its members may elicit fear in some and move them to keep their distance. But when God moves in their hearts to create a spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst, they will come. When by the Holy Spirit they are caused to realize that there is no other stream, that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. They will come. Which brings us to the next intensified dynamic, which is evangelistic effectiveness. Verse 14, more than ever believers, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, we've all already read again in, in Acts chapter 2 on that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed and were added to the church. We read read in Acts chapter 4 that about 5,000 men believed. That number not including the women and children who may also have been with them and and also believed. And, And now in Acts 5, we're not given a number. Luke just tells us that there were more than ever before multitudes of both men and women. How many is a multitude? It's like a lot. It's not just a congregation or a crowd. It's, it's a movement. And it wasn't the eloquence of Peter or the quality of the worship band that followed them around or, 
or the excellent sound and lighting system that enhanced their their image and, and their presentation. It was the only the power of the Holy Spirit working through the lives of men whose lives were surrendered to Jesus Christ and who were pure before God. See, it's the will of God that his church should grow, that, that lost people are found. And talk about heightened intensity, the final dynamic that we see here is an unbelievable level, an unbelievable exercise of spiritual power and authority. Verses 15 and 16, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Apparently the news about the healing of that lame man had spread far and wide because they were coming from far and wide in hopes that they or their loved ones might also be healed. And so great was the power that they were positioning themselves so that even the shadow of Peter might fall on some of them. Isn't that odd? Isn't that amazing? That they would just get on the the sunny side of the street. So as Peter walked by, his shadow might be cast on them and they might be healed. Not unlike, by the way, the quest of that woman who had a hemorrhage of blood who reached out in a crowd and just touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed. They brought the sick and those afflicted by demons, and all of them were healed. I looked it up, by the way. All, that word all, it means all. It means all. Every one of those who were brought to the apostles were healed and were delivered from the power of Satan. What happens when Christians get serious about personal purity and holiness? A clean Christian and a clean church become clear channels through whom the Holy Spirit is free to flow with power. Go back with me to those two verses we saw earlier in Second Timothy. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now let me ask you this morning, what what is it in your life that is preventing the free flow of the Spirit of God through your life? Maybe there's some deep-rooted sin that you're clinging to so tightly that it's preventing you from experiencing the, the fullness and the joy of the presence of the power of God in your life. Wouldn't you like to be a vessel 
for honorable use. Wouldn't you like to feel the the wind blowing through your hair and the Spirit of God blowing through your life? Ready for every good work God would have you do. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus and said, for we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece, we are his work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the thing I understand from that is that there are things God wants to do through each of our lives that that he is uniquely designed for us to do. The flip side of that is that if we don't, then he'll just use someone else. And we'll never have that sense of joy, that sense of purpose, of, of being at the center of the will of God. Wouldn't you like to be a vessel for honorable use, ready for every good work that God would have you do? The Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. In the first service, I said, I'm not talking down to you, and everybody laughed because I'm up here and you're down there. I'm not talking down to you because if I say I have no sin, then I deceive myself. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if he, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You put those two verses together, those, those two uh, sets of verses together, the second Timothy passage talked about cleansing ourselves and 1 John 1 9 says that God will cleanse us. Which is it? It's both. It's both. It's God showing us things in our lives that we need to clean out. Nooks and crannies that need to be dusted and sin extracted. Things confronted. And as we participate with the Holy Spirit in that process, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That word confess means not only to acknowledge your sin, but to agree with God about it. Actually, literally means to say the same thing. I'm going to invite the band to come up now. and, and um, But I, I just want us, as we close, I want to invite you to take a moment in the silence of your own heart and of, of this moment to agree with God about your sin. Let's bow our heads together. And as you agree with God about your sin, that you say the same thing that he says about your sin and that you would receive his forgiveness, that, that you would ask him to deliver you from the grip that sin has on your life so that he can once again use you for his honorable purposes.
And as your heads are bowed, I, w- I want to say if, if you walked uh, through the door this morning, and as you walked, as you walked through the door, you, you, you weren't a Christian. You hadn't trusted in Christ as your Savior. Perhaps today is the day that you'll finally say yes to what God is calling you to do and surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I, I don't think it's any accident that God has you here today. I don't think it's an accident that any of us are here. You could walk out here, out of here a different person than you were when you walked in. And it's as simple as transferring your trust from, from all the things you've been trusting in. Maybe you've trusted in your religion, maybe your baptism, maybe your confirmation, maybe your church membership or your morality or your charitable works or, or whatever it is that, that you'd have, you've allowed to persuade yourself that you're okay with God. And transfer your trust from those things which cannot save you to the one thing that, that can. And that's what Jesus Christ accomplished for you at the cross. And allow him to come into your life and make you the person he wants you to be so that he can do through you the things that he wants you to do. And when he does that, he does it not from the outside by means of rules and religion, but he does it from the inside by means of his transforming presence and power in your life. It's an inside job. And it makes all the difference. If you'd like to talk with someone today, we're, we're more than happy to talk with you about how you can know that you're right with God. If you need help in breaking free from sin in your life, we're, we're happy to provide whatever help we can provide in that. Remember that we're in this with you. We're just humans. God wants to come and and make a big, big difference in who we are. It begins with us getting serious about purity and holiness. Let's pray together. Lord, you know all of the conversations that have been going on this morning in the quietness of each heart. And Lord, you know the sin in our lives. You know it better than we know it ourselves. You you understand how it's crippling us. You understand how it's holding us back from all the things you want to do through us and in us. So Lord, may we get serious about this thing. May we be gripped with a holy fear of the Lord. Realizing that that Jesus is about to break through the clouds any day now, any moment. May we be a church and may we be individuals ready for your coming. And we pray in the name of the one who is the only stream, Jesus Christ. Amen.